You ready for the word? Woo! Woo! Yeah. I'm ready for the word too. The word's going to be a little different today. I'm excited about this. We're in this summer series called Summer Sequels where you've chosen the topic. You took last year's series and you picked the top five. We've taken those series and repackaged them into a one-week sequel, which is sometimes difficult. However, with the last week of this series, last week we were in Modern Family, we thought, let's put a mini-series inside of the summer sequel series. And So last week I preached on, on, on marriage and relationships, and today we want to talk about kids and parenting. How many of you know we're all kids? Everybody in here, you're a kid before you became a parent. You're still a kid. You have parents. So today you're going to realize that before you can be a good parent, you have to be a good kid. So today, who better can bring this word on kids than our family life pastor slash children's pastor, Ian O'Brien. Good morning. Hey, I, I, I'm just excited to be here. Uh, every time I get to stand on this stage, I've shared with you before, it's an honor and a privilege. I'm excited to preach to you guys. You guys are riled up this morning. That's exciting. That's awesome. Hey, before we do anything else, before I say another word, I do want to just publicly thank uh, Pastor Mark for this opportunity. I do this every time I'm up here, but uh, it's important to me that you guys know how uh, awesome this is. This opportunity is for me, not just to stand on this stage this morning and, and preach a word to you, but the fact that, uh, that Pastor Mark has entrusted me to oversee the family life ministries at Epicenter Church, and he's entrusted me to partner with him uh, for the vision that we have here at Epicenter, and it's not uh, anything that I take lightly, not just this morning, but, but always, and you know, so thank you for everything you've done for me the last seven years and all the things you've invested in me. I said in the first service, there weren't too many people who would have been crazy enough to take a chance on an awkward homeschooler from Michigan, and uh, you did it. So, thank you. You guys can go ahead and have a seat because you're making me nervous. And let's get going. Like, like Pastor Mark said, um, I'm going to close out the summer sequels series with a sequel to a sequel. And uh, I don't know about you guys, I was a I was a '90s kid. I loved Ninja Turtles, and so they made like the, the live action Ninja Turtles in the first one wasn't good but I was a kid and I thought it was good and then the second one was good and then the third one was the sequel to the sequel was blech. so uh, hopefully I can do a little better than that this morning um, but anyways let's uh, before I start with like Pastor Mark said we're talking about uh, kids and parenting and families and you know some of you guys if, if you kind of know my personal parenting situation you you might ask yourself why in the world should we take advice on parenting from a guy who's only been a parent for two and a half years? And the answer is, you shouldn't. <laughs> and that's why this morning I'm not going to give you advice from my personal experience as much as I'm going to share with you some things that I believe the Bible teaches uh, all of us as parents and even as people that we can apply to uh, our parenting strategies and help make us better parents. Um, before we get there, though... Um, I want to I want to dive into uh, the word. Is that okay? All right. Hey, let's go to to Matthew chapter eighteen. We're going to read just verses one through five. We're going to come back to this a couple different times this morning. Um, starting out though, it starts in verse one. It says, "About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked." 
Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, and anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. So we're going to dive into this a little deeper in a few moments, but even on the surface level right off the bat, we can see from this passage that Jesus loves kids. He has a soft spot for kids. Another passage in Mark chapter 10, he, he, ta- he says, let the little children come to me. There's other verses and passages throughout the, new, uh, throughout the four gospels that kind of show us that Jesus loves kids. But this particular one from here, and we're going to, like I said, we're going to dive into this a little deeper in a few moments, but we can see right there that kids were important to Jesus, and that's why kids are important to us here at Epicenter Church. Um, throughout history, different cultures and communities have had different definitions for what it means to be a child, but the Oxford Dictionary defines child as a young human being, and I'm glad they made that distinction, because if you're a parent, you sometimes wonder if your kid is actually even human. But anyways, they say, a young human being below the age of puberty or below the legal age of majority. That legal age of majority in America would be 18. So essentially we can define a child broadly as anyone between the ages of 0 and 18. And that's really cool because that is the exact ages that fall under Family Life Ministries here at Epicenter Church. So in light of that definition, uh, I want to kind of And before we begin to tackle this idea of parenting, I want to share with you the what, why, and how of Family Life Ministries at Epicenter Church. And I want to share that with you in light of the fact that we've just established that Jesus loved kids, they were were important to Him, and and because of that we love kids and they're important to us here at Epicenter as well. So beginning with the what, the number one goal of any ministry that falls under the Family Life Ministries umbrella here at Epicenter Church, whether it's ECM, our early childhood ministries, uh, E-Kids, our kindergarten through sixth grade ministry on Sunday mornings, Epic Students, our sixth to twelfth grade ministry on Wednesday nights, or Royal Rangers and Impact Girls, uh, our Wednesday night discipleship groups for elementary school kids. Whatever ministry it might be, the number one goal of each of these things is to provide safe, fun environments where kids can hear age-appropriate Bible teaching and develop lasting relationships that will help them grow into a mature faith so that they will become people who live lives focused on worshiping God, loving others, and doing life in a way that glorifies Jesus Christ. That is what we do, and that's what we try to strive to do in each of our family life ministries. Obviously, we do this in different ways for our different groups, and sometimes we're not always as successful as we aim to be, but it is and will always be the driving purpose behind family life ministries at Epicenter. We don't want to create these siloed, standalone ministries that compete for time and attention and finances. We want to, we want to create aspects of a church as a whole so that our kids and students can be involved in the mission and vision of Epicenter Church, not just as the next generation, but as part of the now generation, that they can begin to participate in what God called us to do as a church. They can be involved in that right now so that their faith will last well beyond their high school years, well beyond their childhood. Um, Excuse me. And so even more important than the what, though, is the why. And in order to explain the why of Family Life Ministries at Epicenter Church, I want to share just a couple of numbers with you. The first number I want to share with you is 64%. 64% of 
of professing Christians make their initial decision to follow Jesus before the age of 18. So 64% of people right now alive who follow Jesus Christ decided to do so at least for the first time before they turned 18 years old. And that means that if our kids leave high school without deciding to follow Jesus, the, the chances that they will ever do so go down significantly. 64%. The next number is 4%. And this is my least favorite number uh, that I'll share with you this morning. It's a heartbreaking number to me. Researchers estimate that 4% of the generation known as millennials will profess Christianity by the time they reach adulthood. That breaks my heart because almost all of the students who are in our student ministry, Epic students, are part of that millennial generation. And to imagine that only 4% of them will serve Jesus when they graduate high school terrifies me. It motivates me to work even harder, to invest even more. But it's, it's not a friendly number, but it is a number that we have the power to do something about. Finally... The last number, 43%. Researchers say that 43% of all U.S. citizens are unchurched, which means they don't regularly attend church and they have not stepped foot into a church in at least the last six months. That means that if those numbers hold true in Cumberland County, there are a minimum of 22,500 children between kindergarten and 12th grade who do not go to church and that doesn't even begin to mention the kids who are dealing with divorce and fatherlessness and abuse who are in our buildings. But we have the power to make a difference. So in short, the answer, if, if we had to provide a short answer to why we do family life ministry, and some of you are like, why didn't you just give me the short answer the first time? Because I wanted you to hear those numbers, that's why. The short answer to why we do family life ministry is, because, is this, because lives are at stake. Pastor Mark in a leadership meeting a couple months ago shared that that really is the answer to, the biggest answer to why we do anything here at Epicenter Church because lives are at stake. But I think it's that much more true when we're talking about working with kids and students. So why would we change diapers or, or tell Bible stories or lead centers in ECM? Because lives are at stake and we have the opportunity to lay a foundation of faith. Why would we lead a small group in eKids? Because lives are at stake and we have the opportunity to invest in children while they're, while they're still young and teach them about the love of Jesus. Why would we give up our Wednesday nights to hang out with uh, 6th through 12th graders? Because lives are at stake and we believe in setting an example for them and, and pouring into them and building relationships with them that can help change their lives. That's why we do church at Epicenter, but even more, that's why we do family life ministries, because lives are at stake. And that leads me to the how of what we do in family life ministries, because we, we believe that hearts can be set on fire by services and sermons, but lives are truly changed by relationships. That's, that's what we believe. So we try to build everything we do around relationships and around consistency. See, our, our ultimate vision for Family Life Ministries is that our kids who go to ECM, our nurseries, will see the same faces every week and begin to look forward to spending time with their teachers who know them by name and are looking forward to seeing them. We want a team of people in our e-kids who are willing to give up one service every Sunday and lead a small group so that they will have the same 8 to 10 kids that they see every week and the same 8 to 10 kids see them and they become part of their lives and can build lasting relationships 
and invest in our kids. We want our students to look forward to coming to church on Wednesday nights, not just because of uh, you know, worship services or, or messages, but because they look forward to discussing the difficulties of life with leaders who they know, love, and trust. We believe in relationships, and we cannot get to the level we believe we're called to go without you. So if you were motivated by some of the vision that I share with you or some of the statistics and you want to help us do something about it, coincidentally, there's sign-up sheets in the back and in the, under the connection tank. Even more coincidentally, if you're interested in early childhood ministries, we're having a, a volunteer meeting right after service today and we will feed you for free. So, and if you're not coming to that meeting, you definitely need to check out that fundraiser because I smelled that food and it smelled delicious. Um, but anyways... We want you to be involved. We'd love for you to partner with us and join our team. But even if you can't commit your physical resources or your time at this moment, we want you to commit your spiritual resources and pray for us. Pray for these kids and these students. Pray that they, they don't become part of that 4%, but rather that they become so on fire for Jesus Christ and their lives are changed by him in such a dra dramatic way that they go out and help us reduce that 43% of unchurched kids by bringing more and more and more people into this building to hear about the love that Jesus has for them. With all that being said, and it's not an if, but it's a when, we reach full capacity and we are operating in the fullness of the vision that God has given us in Family Life Ministries, we will still only have these kids under our care for one to three hours a week. Now, obviously, we'll be hopefully la building relationships that will expand outside the walls of this building. But under our direct care and tutelage, they'll only be with us one to three hours a week. They'll be at school 35 to 40 more hours every week. And the other 125 plus hours of each week, they will be with you, their parents. And I'm saying that to say this. You cannot rely on us to be the only example of what it means to follow Jesus that your kids see. You cannot rely on the family life ministries at Epicenter Church or any other church to help your kids become fully developed Christ followers. It has to come from you. They have to see it at home. And I'm going to tell you something that I learned a couple years ago. Well, I knew it before that, but I learned it for real a couple years ago. Parenting is hard. I don't know if you knew that, those of you who aren't parents yet. For just a second, we got uh, several several of our students over here. I just want to talk to you guys for just a second. Parenting is hard. I promise your parents are trying their best. And even when they do or say things that make you roll your eyes or stomp your feet, oh gosh. And I know you got a lot of you have heard that before. I promise they're trying. But it's hard work. You know, I've been working with kids and students for over 15 years in some capacity or another. And almost as soon as I started, I started watching parents, watching the way they interacted with their kids. I was like, I'm going to learn how to be a parent by watching the do's and don'ts from all these guys. And so, you know, after about 10, 15 years of observation, when our son was born two and a half years ago, I kind of figured that I had a pretty well-formulated plan based on what I'd seen. But then, I didn't. It just... You can't really, I've learned you can't really plan for parenting. You just kind of have to respond and react and hope nobody dies that day. <laughs> and so that's why I'm telling you that it would make no sense for me, kind of still a rookie parent, to stand up here and tell you guys how to parent or what, what you should do as a parent. 
And even if I was a veteran parent, it wouldn't make a ton of sense for me to just stand up here and give you a bunch of strategies and steps because you're not going to parent your kid the same way I'm going to parent my kid because my kid is different than your kid and you're different than me. And if you tried to do all the things that I do with my son, with your daughter, then everything's going to get all screwed up. So instead of that, what I want to share with you this morning is not some strategies or some, you know, five life hacks to make your kid do what you want them to do. I want to share with you some principles that I think we can pull from the life of Jesus and apply and infuse with our parenting styles and strategies to help make all of us better parents. Now, before you, before you say, uh, excuse me, I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus was not a parent. I did know that. Thank you. But I think that we can pull some examples from Jesus' interaction with what many would argue were his spiritual children, his disciples, and we can apply those things to our own parenting styles and strategies, again, to help make us better parents. And the first principle that I think we can pull from, from the life of Jesus is that we need to parent with love and discipline. And I know this is not a universal rule, but I, in my experience, many parents feel like they have to go one direction or the other. You know, you'll hear parents say things, well, I just love my kids so much, I don't really want to tell them what to do. I just want to be their best friend and let them figure it out on their own. And then you'll hear somebody on the other end of the spectrum say something like, I got to teach them the difference between right or wrong because it's my way or the highway. And, you know, tough love is the only way to build character. And so we, we feel like we have to go all the way. Many of us feel like we have to go all the way one way or all the way the other way. But the truth is that love versus discipline is not really a battle. It's kind of a relationship. It's not an either or situation as much as it is a both and situation because love without discipline and correction is not real love and discipline and correction without love is abuse so proverbs 13:24 in the message translation proverbs 13:24 says this it says a refusal to correct is a refusal to love love your children by disciplining them that this does not mean that we should um just go around beating our kids all the time or assign felony level punishments for misdemeanor level uh, offenses. It doesn't even mean that we have to punish every single thing they do wrong. What it means is that we have to practice both love and discipline because you can't have one without the other. And that's what's clear uh, from the records we have in the Bible of Jesus' interaction with his disciples. What's clear is that he loved them very dearly but he was not afraid to offer correction or discipline when necessary. As a matter of fact, Matthew chapter 18, the passage we read just a few minutes ago, was an example of Jesus. He used the example of a little child to correct an improper attitude in his disciples. And it's something we'll talk a little bit more about again in a few minutes. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But the thing is that obviously Jesus' situation was a little bit different. He's dealing with grown men, so he can't be like, Peter, you cut that guy's ear off. Go stand in timeout for five minutes. That's probably not going to work. But what he does show us is the willingness to practice love and discipline and the need to find this balance between correction and affirmation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and finding that uh, balance is vital, I think, to effective parenting. Each of us can work this ideology and this principle into our own respective parenting philosophies as we see fit, but we have to understand the importance of this balance in our relationships 
with our kids because if we swing too far in either direction then we have the potential to lose our influence and become tuned out at the most important times in their lives and when we're searching for the balance between love and discipline we can again gain valuable insight from Jesus' handling uh, of his disciples let grace set the pace even after Peter betrayed Jesus by denying him three times. Jesus had every right to say, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. You've wronged me so deeply. I can never forgive you. But instead, he showed grace to Peter. He forgave him and he restored him to his original position. And there's so many examples throughout scripture of Jesus having the opportunity to pronounce condemnation, but instead demonstrating the willingness to to show grace, to forgive. So what, what I'm trying to say here is that just because as parents we have the right to discipline our kids every, every time they do something wrong doesn't mean that harsh discipline is always the right thing to do in every situation and circumstance. We have to find the balance between love and discipline and let grace set the pace. And when we let grace set the pace in our parenting, we will make sure that our kids always know how much we love them even when we're correcting inappropriate attitudes and behaviors. We will never let them forget how loved and valued they are to us. We'll always accept them no matter how they are right now, even as we're trying to lead and guide them further into the purpose and plan that God has created them for. If we allow grace to set the pace, then we'll naturally begin to find the balance between showering them with love and guiding them with correction. Second principle that I think we can see in Jesus' interaction with his disciples is the concept of moments versus minutes. If you're anything like me, you have probably, and you, if you're a parent and you're anything like me, you've probably looked at your kid at least one point in your life and you've said to yourself, How'd that kid get so big? And then it kind of begins to wash over you even further and you're like, oh my goodness, my kid's already almost three and then I haven't spent enough time with him and he's going to get old and then in 15 years he's going to grow up and he's going to move out of the house and I'm going to spend the rest of my life wishing that I'd spent more time and done more fun things with my kid and I was, oh, I'm a terrible parent. What am I going to do? I have to go sit down somewhere and reevaluate my entire life. And that happened to me Friday night. I was watching my son Liam while he was sleeping because that's really the only time he holds still long enough for you to watch him. And... I was just watching him and I began to think like, man, I don't know if I spent enough time with this kid. Like, what, am I really doing a good job? Am I, am I being an effective parent? And I feel like it was the Holy Spirit kind of reminded me. He said, hey, the minutes that you spend with your kid is important, but the moments are what will help shape your child's life. Think about that in your own childhood. What do you remember most about your parents? Do you remember the day-to-day minutia of, you know, minute by minute, getting ready for school, sandwiches, or do you remember specific conversations, events, or moments in time? Chances are you remember the moments, and that's what you rely on when deciding how to parent your own kids is, you know, what did I love or what did I hate? What were the specific moments in time? My dad uh, worked a lot when I was growing up. He would wake up every morning at like 4.30 a.m. He'd drive over an hour to Pontiac, Michigan to work at General Motors. He would work there till at least three. He'd come home, he'd get home between four and 
We'd eat dinner around five, then he, after dinner he would have to go outside to the garage and work on other people's cars to earn extra money. He'd come in between 9.30 and 10 o'clock at night, kiss us goodnight, and go to bed, start it all over the next day. So I didn't get to spend a ton of minutes with my dad growing up. But boy, do I remember the moments. I remember sledding. We had a giant hill in our backyard, and we'd go sledding in the winter uh, every day, the day after Christmas every year, he'd, he'd make sure he had nothing on his calendar. He'd spend the entire day playing with my brothers and I and our brand new toys. You know, I remember playing basketball in the driveway. I remember all the time we spent together on vacations. I even remember some specific times where my dad sat me down and said, boy, you got to get your life together. I remember him teaching me how to drive and how to change a tire. He didn't teach me how to drive that well, but I think we skipped a couple lessons. But, you know, I remember breakfast appointments. I remember there were more than enough moments of togetherness and love with my dad that I never had to question how he felt about me during the minutes that he wasn't able to be around. Now, the Bible explains this concept not in one specific passage, but really throughout the New Testament with the use of two different Greek words for time. Uh, and excuse my pronunciation if I get it wrong, but uh, kairos and chronos. Chronos time is essentially the chronological passing of time, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. Chronological time. So it's the, it's the time that when you're experiencing it, it feels like it's taking forever, but once it's gone, it feels like it flew by. Now, kairos time is more about the specific moments or occurrences throughout life. Kairos time are the moments that never last long enough while you're experiencing them, but endure forever in our hearts and memories and help shape who we are and who we become. So Kronos time defines the minutes and Kairos defines the moments. And I believe that the Bible shows us, again, throughout the four Gospels that Jesus took a Kairos approach to discipling his followers. He understood that he would never have enough chronological minutes to tell them everything he wanted them to know. He would never be able to squeeze in every single lesson he wanted to teach in the amount of chronological time allowed. And so instead, he focused on these moments. Every time he could find a teachable moment, every time they asked a question, he would give an example. Every time you know, they needed correction, he would make sure he painted the picture in such a way that they would always remember that moment. And that's the way that Jesus discipled, and that's the most important aspect of our parenting. It is not to say that we should use the moments as an excuse for reducing the amount of minutes that we spend. In fact, I think each of us as parents must be intentional about creating as many Kairos moments with our kids as we can. Whether your kids, this is, this is not so much the scripture as this is my personal opinion for just this little section, but I don't care if your kid is two or 20. I am a huge proponent of parents spending one-on-one time with their kids. If you've got one kid, if you've got eight kids, find some time to spend one-on-one time with those kids. You know, dads, take your daughters out on dates or your son, but don't call it a date because that's weird. But, you know, spend one-on-one time with your kids. Five years from now, neither one of you will remember a single thing you talked about. But your kid will always remember that moment because in that moment, they knew they were the most important thing in the world to you, that you, they were worth, it was worth your chronological minutes to create those moments and invest in them and invest in their future. I, I mean, 
like I said, those things are what helped shape me and helped me become who I am. But creating those moments will require minutes. Many of you have heard Pastor Mark say a couple different times that if the devil can't get you bad, he'll get you busy. So we, we will have to make some sacrifices with our minutes in order to create those moments. But I promise you that it will be worth it. You know, we, we all, we, many of us work, we have busy lives, but just find a way to create those moments that will help shape your kid's future and, help, and that will help create memories that last forever. The final parenting principle that I think we can pull from Jesus' interaction with his disciples is this, lead by example. And this is something that all of us are doing every single day, whether we intend to or not. For instance, about two or three weeks ago, uh, Liam and I were driving somewhere, I don't remember where, and we stopped at a red light. And all of a sudden, from the back seat, I heard this little voice shout, Go, car! So I was like, Liam, Liam, it's okay, buddy. It's a red light. They, they can't go. Oh, okay. So then a few minutes later, we're, you know, I can't remember if somebody pulled out in front of us or if we were just going a little faster than we should have been and we had to slow down. So, but I hit the brakes, um, not hard, but just tapped the brakes. And from the, from the back seat again, I heard this little voice, go, man, go. And so I thought to myself, oops. Because as parents and even as teachers or leaders or mentors, as anybody who is intentionally investing in the lives of kids, we set the tone for who our kids will be, the kind of choices they make, the kind of people they'll become. Okay, I'm not saying that any parent should ever be blamed or held accountable for the actions that their adult children make because each of us is accountable for our own decisions. However, we do help shape who they will be and, and what kind of decisions they will make. Jesus not only understood this reality, but I believe that he harnessed it for the benefit of the people closest to him. Rather than saying, as I've heard many parents say before, do as I say, not as I do. Jesus said in John 15, 12, love each other the way I have loved you. So he, he turned this notion of do as I say, not as I do on its head and said, hey, do as I do, say as I say, love as I love, serve as I serve, live as I live, follow the example that I'm setting for you. And he did this because Jesus understood that the people who watch us the closest, in his case, his disciples, in our case, our kids, the people who watch us the closest will most closely emulate our behaviors. Another thing that Pastor Mark says a lot, I'm quoting you today, he says all the time, or not all the time, but I've heard him say many times that whatever we do as parents in moderation, our kids will do in excess because the people who watch us the closest will most closely emulate our behaviors, and Jesus knew that, so he intentionally taught his disciples the right way to live through his words and his actions. And if there's one thing that I've learned in my 15 years working with kids and students, it's this. Kids and students are a lot smarter and more observant than we give them credit for. Okay, whether it's at home with my two-year-old, in a small group with a fourth grader in e-kids, or during a conversation with a teenager at Epic Students, I constantly hear things that show me that these kids have a better grasp on life, on their families, on even as you as their parents than I would have ever thought. They're constantly watching us, not just what we say, but what we do in our body language and our tone of voice as we're doing things. They're constantly making observations. And, you know, as parents, it can be easy to forget, but it's also imperative to remember that kids and teenagers, as subhuman as they may sometimes act and behave, 
are human beings created in the image of God with thoughts, feelings, emotions, and questions all their own. And they're going to take their cues on how to respond to these thoughts, feelings, questions, and emotions from you, their parents. I can't tell you how many times in the 30 months that Liam's been alive that he's been doing something so incredibly frustrating, and I'm this close to just turn around and fussing him out, and I'm like, you learned that from me, so I can't say anything. Our kids are watching us, and and they're, they're taking our cues from us. So when we're leading by example, we have to be very careful that it isn't our example that they're following, but the example that Christ sets for us. And that's the problem with this principle of leading by example, because for so many of us, it leads to this pursuit of becoming the perfect parent. You know, we want the best for our kids. We know that they're going to follow our examples and And so we strive to be the best parent, the best mentor, the best friend, the best example that we can possibly be. But this pursuit of perfection at parents often leads us down the wrong path because when we make a mistake, we become determined to be better, to do better, to be more effective, to just be a more loving parent. And we tell ourselves, hey, what's wrong with you? You can't mess up again. Don't you understand? These kids are watching you. You're you're, you're setting the tone for who they're going to become. You're supposed to be a great parent. We want to be perfect parents because we want our kids to have perfect lives so that they can grow up and be perfect parents and give perfect lives to their kids and we can perpetuate this cycle of perfection. That's our goal and that's our desire. Real quick, if you tune me out because of all the parent talk, I'd love for you to come back in right now because the pursuit of perfection doesn't stop with parenting. There are people in this room right now, whether we know it consciously or not, that are striving with everything we have to be the perfect spouse, the perfect boyfriend or girlfriend, the perfect boss, the perfect employee, the perfect provider, the perfect student, the perfect teacher, the perfect son, the perfect daughter, the perfect pastor, the perfect Christian. We're doing everything we can to achieve this this level of perfection and this pursuit of perfection is driving all of us absolutely crazy because every time we mess up, it reminds us all over again of just how far away from that standard we've set for ourselves we actually are. And this is where Matthew chapter 18 comes back into play. Go back there if you could, please. We're We're gonna read verse one again. And then I'll paraphrase from there. Verse 1 says, About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This was not the only time in Scripture that the disciples asked a question like this. They're constantly comparing themselves to one another, trying to, trying to be the greatest, trying to be the best. And that's what they're asking Jesus here with this statement, they, who, who will be the greatest, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What they're saying is, God, how do, I, how do I get to be the best? Which one of us is the closest to perfect, and how do we get all the way there? Tell us, which, which performance, which of our performances is the most pleasing? Which of us is the closest to perfect? And Jesus responds in such a Jesus way. This is not straight, this is obviously not from scripture, but this is the picture that was painted in my head as I'm reading Matthew chapter 18, verses two through four. I see it this way. Jesus kind of turns to the crowd. He sees a little child, maybe four or five, six years old. He says, hey, hey, come here, come here. And that kid 
looks at his parents like, can I go see Jesus? And, you know, they do that parent nod thing like, you can go. So he, he goes and says, hi, Jesus. And Jesus kind of, you know, he gets down on his knees. Hey, buddy, how are you? What's your name? Billy. Because Billy is a Jewish name. I don't know if you, I'm just kidding. He's like, Billy. He's like, hi, Billy. It's nice to meet you. I'm Jesus. Come here with me. And he, and he leads Billy back and he puts him in the center of the disciples. And he says, hey, guys, listen. You see Billy here? Like, yeah, we see Billy. Okay, well, I need to tell you something. If you don't start acting more like Billy and quit trying to be perfect and quit trying to perform, you're not even going to get into the kingdom of heaven, let alone be the greatest there. See, the kind of people who are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are not the ones who are the richest or the flashiest or the most perfect. It's the ones who are as humble and helpless as Billy. Now, to the disciples, that was probably a tremendous punch in the gut because in our society kids are incredibly valued we, we see them as the most important part of the family unit and I believe the kids are valuable I spent a lot of time talking about that actually giving my life investing in kids but in this culture kids were seen more as possessions someone to be seen and not heard you know without even the slightest hint of ambition because they knew that they were wholly dependent on their parents for provision and for life itself. So when Jesus explained to his disciples that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven were like little children, he was not saying that all the short, loud, stinky people were going to be at the front of the line. He was saying that unless we become as humble as a child, helpless and wholly dependent on him, we will never fully realize the plans that he's created us for. I'll tell you one more story about my son. He's two and a half. He can't dress himself. He can't bathe himself. He thinks he can, but he can't. He cannot cook for himself or do his own laundry. He can't transport himself places. And if something ever happened to my wife, he most certainly could not provide a roof over his own head. Without us, his parents, he is completely helpless and hopeless. But he doesn't have a single worry in the world can't say that I've ever met a person more happy and carefree as my son. The only time he gets upset is when you tell him he can't have a freeze pop before dinner. (laughs) And he has no ambitions to be the best at anything. He has no desire to strive for perfection because somewhere in his little brain he understands that there's nothing of any value he can do without help from his parents. But the thing is that he trusts us so completely to take care of him and to meet all of his needs that the thought that it might not happen doesn't even cross his mind. He wakes up every day and goes to bed every day knowing that mom and dad are going to take care of him no matter what. And that's what Jesus means when he says, that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those who have humbled themselves like children because the reality is that we cannot be good parents. We cannot be good anything until we remember how to be good children depending on our heavenly father for everything and never worrying that he won't come through.
when we realize that we can never achieve greatness on our own is when we become truly great in the eyes of the kingdom of heaven. See, no matter how good or bad your parents were, no matter how good or bad of a parent you feel like you are, and no matter how messed up or put together your life is, at this moment, none of us is ever going to be perfect on our own. As a matter of fact, un until we get ourselves to this place where we're willing to admit that we cannot accomplish anything of lasting value through our own efforts, we won't even inherit the perfection that God is longing to bestow upon each of us. Because the irony of our pursuit of perfection, whether it's parenting or some, some area of life entirely different, the irony of our pursuit of perfection is that the moment we attempt to achieve that perfection on our own, we're giving up the only shot we ever had at it. We're saying to God, hey, God, no, 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 no. I got this. I don't need you to make me perfect through your grace because I believe that I can get there on my own. We're shutting God's offer of acceptance and love in order to pursue what we think is best. Kind of like a rebellious teenager. There's hope for us. Paul writes in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, he says this, he says, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. And if you are his heir, guess what, folks? We inherit his perfection. We don't have to try to do it on our own anymore because we can inherit his perfection. If we are heirs of God, if we will turn away from our focus of the pursuit of perfection on our own and instead run towards focusing on God and on being the good children who depend on Him for everything, then we can be the kind of parents, the kind of people, and the kind of Christ followers that God has created us to be.